Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen, along with Jonathan Farrell and Lisa Abramowitz. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg Terminal. Joining us on Bloomberg Television and on radio, I'm pleased to say the New York Fed President John Williams joins us alongside Bloomberg's Michael McKee. President Williams, always great to catch up with you, sir. And if you don't mind, I'm going to start the conversation with a quote of yours. You went on to say in the last day or so, from my perspective, we are quite a ways from achieving my interpretation of substantial further progress. So, President Williams, I imagine you anticipated this trillion dollar question. What is substantial further progress? Well, you know, that's something we'll be uh, analyzing. I'll be studying very carefully, uh, looking at the progress we're making about getting to, to back to, to maximum employment and also our goals around a, a 2% uh, inflation on average over time. So it's really looking at all the data, the in indicators, and really seeing that actual achieve progress, both in terms of employment and also in terms of uh, underlying inflation trends uh, back to 2%. So it's really you know, looking carefully at all the um, data and in, in indicators and assessing that uh, to come to a conclusion. President Williams, for the benefit of our audience on radio, as I asked that question, you smiled because clearly you anticipated it. I just wonder why keeping what constitutes substantial further progress vague is a feature and not a bug of policy. Well, you know, it's, we are not following some mechanical formula for making monetary policy. We have to look at a wide range of uh, information and uh, different indicators. And we also have to think about where the uncertainties and risks to the outlook are too. So I wouldn't say it's vague. I think it's pretty clear. We've laid out very clear indicators about um, how we think about maximum employment and price stability. Uh, and, but it's, there's no kind of a numerical uh, uh, threshold or something that we're looking at. We're really looking at the, the full set of data around around these goals and taking into account all the extreme, you know, extraordinarily high levels of uncertainty uh, in the economy that we've experienced for the past year and a half, and uh, and we're continuing to experience as the economy uh, reopens. Well, John, the, uh, there's a lot of uncertainty, but that uh, stern taskmaster Jay Powell makes you write down your forecasts, and I'm just wondering. On the uh, Fed spectrum from the survey of uh, economic projections, uh, what you think growth will be this year and in 2022, and what you think PCE inflation will be? Well, you know, we're seeing a, you know great um, you know signs of the reopening of the economy in, in the past several months. So I have a uh, pretty optimistic view of what GDP growth will look like this year. Uh, so my, my view is that growth will be about seven percent on a Q4 over Q4 basis for real GDP, which is the best number. If it you know if that forecast is true, that'll be the best number since 1984. <clears throat> so I feel very good about you know the progress we're making on vaccinations, uh, on on growth supported by strong fiscal support and so that's that's my forecast and i see the unemployment rate coming down to around four and a half percent by the end of the year which is again really great um, signs of progress looking to next year i think growth will be uh gdp growth will probably be around three to three and a half percent um slower than this year because we're not going to get as much of that reopening dynamic and some of the very strong fiscal support we saw uh last year and this year uh, will be ebbing uh, uh next year in terms of its contribution to growth i still see the, the labor market continuing to recover next year uh, uh, unemployment uh, uh, trending uh, downward. 
terms of inflation, you know, I do see uh, the very um, you know sharp rise in uh, prices we've seen in the past few months is mostly temporary. So after inflation uh, being at uh, 3% or so uh, this year, I expect uh, both core and overall inflation rates uh, to uh, come back down next year uh, to uh, around 2%. Uh, as some of the reopening dynamics, you know, um, play out, uh, and some of these uh, big increases in some of these prices, like used cars and uh, things like that, subside. Well, uh, let's let me put it the way uh, the Fed has always put it: If the economy performs as you expect, would it be likely that we would see you begin to taper in the fourth quarter of this year, or is that too early? Well, it's really going to be driven by the data. You know, Mike, you know, I've, you know I'm very data dependent in my views on, on policy. And right now we're still in the midst of a, just a really an, uh, extraordinary and positive uh, set of developments in terms of the economy, in terms of vaccinations and other things. So right now it's really about watching the data, seeing how quickly this economy can recover and get back to, you know, uh, uh, to its full potential. And so any views I have about when, um, you know, when we'll get to that point that we can start uh, slowing the pace of our asset purchases. I'll be driven really by what, what's happening in the data. The, as I mentioned before, the kind of the, the risks that are out there in, in terms of the economic outlook and, and doing it in a way hope that, you know, really will be uh, communicated very uh, transparently and, and, and done in a very, you know, orderly way. So that's, that's how I view that. The timings can be driven by the, uh, you know, how the, how the data evolve. And really my focus is on providing uh, the appropriate amount of monetary support for a full and complete economic recovery and with inflation averaging 2%. Well, let's talk a little bit about what's appropriate. What do we get for $120 billion right now a month in purchases that we wouldn't get from less given the state of the economy? And are you worried that uh, the minute you announce that you might begin tapering, we get a taper tantrum? Does that keep you pinned in place? Well, you know, we really, I, in my view, we need to focus on getting monetary policy in the right place to, to support the very strong economic uh, recovery um, and, you know, the R2% inflation goal. I think, you know, one of the lessons from the experience of the, the taper from uh, years ago is the importance of, uh, you know, not only getting the right decision and the right time for the decision, but also, you know, doing our very best to communicate that uh, as transparently uh, uh, and, um, you know, kind of uh, clear Clearly, uh, to the public, I do think that you know this is this time. You know, we have a really strong economy uh, in terms of the uh, recovery, the pace of recovery. We still have a long ways to go to get to maximum employment, but we're on a very good track for that. And I think that in the context of a, a strong recovery um, and a good economic, a very good economic outlook, then we can you know we can adjust uh, monetary policy hopefully without any uh, uh, undue market um, uh, or, you know turmoil or uh, things like that. We you just mentioned. President Williams, Mike asked that question in a really polite fashion, so I'll be a little bit more blunt. Does this housing market in America need the Fed's support? Well, you know, the obviously the housing market is one of the key drivers, uh, along with consumer spending and business investment of the strong growth. Um, now, my view is that the monetary accommodation that we're providing, both in terms of the very low Fed funds rate and also our asset purchases, is supporting overall financial conditions, really lowering the cost of, um, you know, financing for households, for businesses uh, in general. It's not, you know, specifically targeted uh, to, you know, to the housing market. Um, in 
term, you know, my my view on this is we need to you know focus on our maximum employment and, and price stability goals, and and as the economy um, you know makes a substantial further progress on those goals, we can um, make decisions around adjusting asset purchases and and then further down the road uh, in terms of our uh, interest rates. So it's really a, my focus is on. On, on those goals, uh, where it's not really about supporting or not supporting the housing market in particular. Just a little hint from you there on what your view might be when it does come the time to reduce asset purchases on the composition of that reduction. President, is there a bias to reduce, say, the purchases of MBS over Treasuries, or what I'm hearing from you, maybe not? Well, you know, those are uh, issues that we need to think about uh, in terms of not only the timing of the adjustment of the uh, of the purchase pace, but the, the timing over which that would happen, and also the composition of our, uh, any adjustments that we you know we make. So those are issues that we need to analyze very carefully um, and think through uh, in terms of again achieving our maximum employment and price stability goals. Well, you're talking about it right now because the chairman told us. So, President Williams, from your standpoint, what is the optimal approach to that conversation? The optimal approach to the conversation around uh, the asset purchases. Yeah. Well, I think we just you know we do what we do very are the best. We analyze all the data, analyze the um, the options we have in front of us, and and really focus on the big picture of our of the goals that we're trying to achieve, the progress we're making on those, and how to best um, set our policy um, you know instruments as as we can to achieve those goals. It's, President it's Williams, we forgive me for jumping in because you're too good at this. When it comes to the asset purchase programme, do you view it as 120 billion a month or a mix of purchases that need to be reduced independent of one another? Would you focus on MBS over Treasuries, Treasuries over MBS, or do you just look at the whole package that needs to be reduced equally? What's the optimal approach to that? Oh yeah, so you know, I clearly see the, the two supporting uh, comedy of financial conditions broadly. So that's that's how I think about it. Think it to your question. Now, can we? Do we have options in terms of adjusting them um, in in different ways? The different the uh, purchases of MBS and, and Treasuries. Yeah, clearly we have options to do that. And my, from my point of view, the, the main purpose of these is really to provide strong support for the economic recovery. Well, John, if uh, you do start the tapering process, uh, do you go through tapering completely before you get to rate increases? Do you stop QE purchases altogether before you would consider raising rates? Well, Mike, as you know, you know, last time we we had a, a sequence of of, of of decisions that were made around that. I think this time, uh, you know, clearly we can. Um, we've learned a lot from the experience of the uh, the slowing of the asset purchases last time, and then eventually the normalization of monetary policy. So those are lessons that I think are important uh, to take. But you know, this time is very different. The economic, uh, the recession, the recovery are just very different from the global financial crisis because of the you know the nature of it being driven by the. Pandemic. Pandemic. So, you know, I think it's really important that we don't sit, sit here and just think you know, like what's going to happen necessarily a year or two years ahead and think through exactly all of those, but really watch the data, see how the economy evolves and see how our policy, you know, uh, decisions can best support the achievement of our goals. So those are, those are uh, you know, issues that we'll obviously think about carefully, but also they're, they're well off in the future and, and we really should be based on how the economy is evolving rather than, um, you know, kind of where I, where things things are right now in, in June of 2020. Well, let's talk about the raising interest rates and your view on it. Uh, where is your dot? Did you move it at, at the last meeting? Are you in 2022, 2023? 
and you're not going to be surprised by my answer this time. So I'm, I'm not going to talk about my specific, you know, view as, as the chair, uh, you know, put, uh, uh, you know, has said on uh, last week is um, uh, that, you know, these are just projections based on a modal outlook. Uh, each person comes into the meeting and, and has a view on that. And so, you know, I, I, I don't think really right now that the key issue for the FOMC is, you know, when when is the economy going to get to this point where we meet these, um, you know, these um, uh, these conditions that we've set out in the FOMC statement about uh, time for, for the liftoff of the Fed funds rate, that's still way off in the future. Right now, really, I think the attention is on the on the taper. In terms of my own views, my focus is really on the framework. Is Our new policy framework introduced last year is, I think, positions us really well to deal with the situations that we're dealing with today and will over the next few years. And I think our FOMC guidance around the Fed funds rate is, is, is a very strong place to be and that's you know so when we get to that point where the economy is is meeting those um, you know conditions that we've laid out in the FMC statement you know I think that's when we'll get to the discussion about whether the Fed funds rate um, you know what's the appropriate um, stance of the Fed funds rate that's still you know quite a ways off from um, from today. Well, if you won't tell us where your dad is, let me ask it this way: uh, You were quite bullish yesterday in your speech. Uh, and yet we're still quite a ways from substantial further progress. Are we getting to that substantial further progress more quickly than you thought? Does the economy's speed uh, surprise you? And is the inflation number to you surprising? Well, let me start with the inflation. Clearly, inflation num recent inflation number has been very high. Um, that's uh, and you know obviously get a lot of attention uh, uh, from us and from everybody and and really being we need to be very careful uh, watching that data, seeing to what extent these are just you know transitory temporary factors or or do they um, you know spill into kind of underlying inflation over the next few years. So clearly inflation has moved up uh, quite a bit. That's something that's um, you know part of the picture. In terms of employment, you know I do tend to go back to indicators like um, the employment to population ratio um, and the unemployment rate and a lot of other indicators of the uh, health of the labor market. And we have made, you know, progress for, for sure since uh, December of last year. But, um, you know, that progress is still, I still don't think it's close to the substantial uh, further progress uh, that we set out on. And, you know, really it's going to, you know, my views on this could depend on how the data evolve over you know, over coming months, you know, see, can the, are we adding um, a large number of jobs? We see employment of population continue to move back up and watching obviously all the other indicators as well. So I'm really focused on employment because that's what our mandate is. And, and are we making really strong progress uh, towards uh, uh, the maximum employment goal that, that we have? John, when it comes to the participation rate in the US labor market, do you have any yeah. conviction around what that looks like, how that progresses through the next 12 months? How unknown is yeah. that? Yeah, that's a, that, that's obviously a really hard question. Um, uh, participation changes for a variety of reasons. We've seen a lot of churn in the labor market in the, in the past few months. Um, people exiting the labor market, coming in, you know, a, a lot happening with the reopening of the economy uh, and, and all the events of the past year and a half of the pandemic. So I think right now it's hard to get a, a, a clear read on the underlying trends. I do tend to look at, you know, one category um, in the data, which is the, the employment of population for 25 to 54 year olds, which probably, you know, more in the middle of, of, of people's careers. 
And, you know, if you look back before the, um, you know, before the pandemic, that was over 80, 80%. So I think that, you know, hopefully we can get back towards a number uh, like that. But, um, and, you know, for the overall population, we have seen uh, some retirements uh, from some older workers. So I think we'll have to carefully analyze that data to see if that's, um, uh, you know, ch shifted the trend somewhat in terms of labor force participation. So I think, you know, we have to just look at the data carefully, analyze it, um, and, you know, come to a, our best um, assessment of what you know maximum employment was. Now, one thing I just want to say is we had an unemployment rate of three and a half percent before the pandemic. We had very strong labor force participation, um, and I there, I don't see any reason um, uh, that our economy can't reattain a really strong labor market uh, similar to that. It may be slightly different in terms of participation and some of the other issues, but it should still be an economy that is really um, a very strong one with maximum employment again with our two uh, percent inflation. And coming forward from here, President Williams, as you know, you do get a lot of criticism over the current policy stance and often the Federal Reserve will bring up the labour market to support the current policy stance. We had a story from the Wall Street Journal this morning on Blackstone agreeing to buy a company that buys and rents single-family homes in a $6 billion deal. This is Wall Street competing with Main Street for single-family homes. Is the Federal Reserve part of the problem when it comes to this? Well, you know, this we're doing, you know, conducting monetary policy, which is really just really about setting interest rates and supporting the strong economic recovery and our inflation goals. I, you know, uh, there's always developments in in the markets that, um, you know, or you maybe they're affected somewhat by interest rates, but I think are really driven by other uh, factors. And I, I just remind people too, you know, when we think about why interest rates are so low and maybe how people are behaving around very low interest rates. I think uh, a key part of this is is that this is a structural change in our the global economy. We have very low interest rates globally, uh, not just because the Fed is holding interest rates lower right now to support the recovery, which we're doing, but even uh, once the economy is fully recovered, we've achieved our goals. The, the neutral or kind of longer run interest rate is still uh, very low. So I think just in, in when we watch you know, kind of things like this. We have to keep in mind that part of low interest rates is is obviously the in, intentional by Fed policy, but part of it is really uh, a big part of the declining interest rates over the past few decades is driven by uh, uh, more structural things like demographics and productivity. Usage of the Fed's overnight reverse repo uh, facility has surged, uh, hit a record yesterday, seven hundred and sixty-five billion. Why isn't that a signal that there is too much cash in the markets and you don't need to add more? Well, the goal here is not to add cash to the markets. Mike, it's, it is to, uh, you know, uh, with our asset purchases, is to provide really strong um, financial conditions to support economic growth. Uh, an effect of that is that, um, you know, that does our purchases of assets uh, and other other developments tend have been pushing, uh, you know, up the amount of reserves that would be in the the banking system. Now we we created the overnight reverse repo facility, which you just mentioned uh, years ago. Uh, specifically to make sure that interest rates are in the range that the FOMC set. So the FOMC has set a target range for the Fed funds rate of zero to 25 basis points. And it's, you know, we want to make sure the interest rates stay well within that range and not fall below it or not be above it. And so one of the ways that we do that is by, uh, through the overnight reverse repo, uh, putting a, a floor on, on interest rates. So what we're seeing here is, I think, of the natural operation of, of uh, you know, this um, uh, kind of arrangement 
arrangements that we've set up to control interest rates. So, you know, banks uh, can hold reserves uh, and um, do that um, with the Fed. Um, and they offered, you know, deposit rates and other services to their customers. Uh, customers look at what the, the banks are offering in terms of deposit rates. They also look at money market mutual funds and other investments and think about where is it best to, to park uh, their cash. So we see a natural movement between these two, especially with the large amount of reserves. We're seeing uh, investors move finding uh, uh, the money market mutual fund uh, um, you know, option um, more advantageous. And so we're seeing a lot more money moving the overnight reverse repo facility. And that has shifted over time. That's exactly how the system is supposed to work. Interest rates are well within the range, uh, just as the FOMC wants. And we're not seeing any problems with market functioning or anything. It's, it's working exactly as assigned. And I'm not concerned about the large amount of overnight re uh, reverse repos. It's, it's exactly what you'd expect given you know, uh, conditions in money markets. So this is, a, I think, a good sign. President Williams, you've been kind with your time, and it's always great to catch up. We appreciate it, sir. The president of the New York Fed, John Williams there, alongside Mike McKee. It is the way it has gotten there. And of course, this is all about the microeconomics and the underpinning of supply and demand. Someone expert on this and consistent in well-written thought is Francisco Blanche of Bank of America Securities, head of global commodities and derivative research. I want to go right away, uh, Francisco, to what is less talked about, and that is the demand dynamic. What do you envision to be the demand dynamic that gets you to your acclaimed $100 a barrel? Uh, hey, Tom. Hey, thanks for having me. So three things are key here. Uh, first, there's a lot of pent-up demand. We've all been locked up uh, in our uh, living rooms, in my case, uh, but uh, really with very little movement, whether it's business or personal, there's a huge amount of pent-up demand that we're already seeing in the U.S. Uh, the rest of the world is going to join soon. Uh, Europe is uh, maybe a couple months behind, and emerging markets are between six and 12 months behind the U.S. They're the big laggards, but we think they're going to come back in, 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 a, in a huge way over the next 12 months as vaccines get, get distributed. Sec second reason, uh, Tom, is really around what, what, we, what we call the avoidance of mass transit. Uh, people are going to be using more private vehicles, uh, avoid subways and buses for an extended period of time. Third reason really is what we call the new work from home, or as uh, we put it, work from car uh, situation. People are going to be working remotely one or two days a week in the future, um, and that's going to lead to more driving, not less driving, in, in, uh, in, in, in our view. Again, we are basing this opinion on, on estimates pre-pandemic and, and studies pre-pandemic that suggested that one or two days of work from home eventually leads to more, not less driving. Okay. Uh, those are the three main reasons on the demand side, Tom. Of course, on the flip side, when it comes to the demand uh, picture, business travel not coming back as quickly with a lot of companies saying that they are going to return to just small fractions of what they used to do. How much does that factor into your estimates? Well, so business travel is a, is a big factor for uh, airlines, but uh, let me just give you one data point. Uh, in 2019, uh, average uh, travel was roughly uh, 2.3 million passengers per day going through TSA checkpoints. We are back at 2 million, and we still don't have any business travel going on. So uh, clearly, I think the pent-up demand story is, uh, seems to me is, is going to overwhelm the, uh, the business travel story. Uh, at least over the course of the next 12 to 18 months. Yeah. Uh, I'm, I'm not claiming I'm not claiming this will last forever, but I think I think there's a, there's going to be a huge surge here 
uh, over over the next few quarters. On the flip side, the supply picture, we have this morning a story about how Russia is arguing potentially for an OPEC plus supply increase, a boost based on this increase in demand. You're starting to hear about shale producers eyeing what it would look like to bring a little bit more production online. How much do you expect that to accelerate? How does that affect the $100 a barrel call? Right. So, so it, it, it certainly does. Um, my, my expectation with regards to shale is that we are going to be see we're going to see uh, producers lagging for the most part. Remember, there's three elements of this that uh, on, on the non-OPEC side that are going to uh, hold back supply. Number one is the fact that uh, uh, government policies are going to pressure companies to invest less. Right? We are seeing that with International Energy Agency calling for an end to oil and gas investments to meet uh, Paris uh, climate goals. Second reason is uh, we are seeing uh, investors uh, pressuring companies, whether it's for financial reasons, to see more more, uh, cash flows coming back, or for ESG reasons to reduce investment. And the third element really is is the judiciary. We we now have seen with the case of Shell um, that the judiciary can also get involved and force you legally to reduce your emissions. With regards to OPEC, it's, it's the big risk in our call. Uh, does OPEC discipline uh, hold? Uh, my guess it probably will. Remember, we've only averaged $64 a barrel uh, so far this year. The average OPEC budget is at 70 So they, they just uh, they want to make up what they lost right. last year in terms, of, in terms of ground. Francisco, as we speak, Bitcoin bakes down. Brad, maybe we've got an interday chart of Bitcoin to help us yeah. out here. Uh, we've had people on uh, Bloomberg talking up Bitcoin, its stability. Francisco, I want to cut to the chase. A grizzled pro like you, is Bitcoin linked to gold? Is there a compare and contrast, a correlation, a relationship of Bitcoin to gold? Okay, so let me let me cut to the chase. You know, I, I put a pretty pretty negative uh, piece on Bitcoin back in March entitled "Bitcoin's Dirty Little Secrets," where I argued uh, that uh, Bitcoin had serious environmental issues, and uh, obviously uh, there was a big U-turn in China Tesla, agrees which, uh, with you, and China agrees with us too, as well, of course, because they they are burning a huge amount of coal to produce those those Bitcoin to mine those Bitcoin. Um, this is my take on Bitcoin. Bitcoin, uh, it was completely uncorrelated uh, to other asset classes. Uh, it became more of a risk asset in the past 12 months. It was highly correlated to equities, to Mexican peso, uh, to copper. Um, and, and gold is a safe asset. It's typically correlated to 10-year treasuries, uh, to Japanese yen. So uh, to your question, are Bitcoin and, and, and um, uh, gold linked? Uh, in a way, they are, because one is a risk asset, the other one is a safe asset. So, so they're they're very different characteristics. Now, what is going to be the long run uh, story for Bitcoin? I don't know. Uh, what I know now is that it's a risk asset and gold's a safe asset. Um, and gold's been a safe asset for a very very long period of time. So, I'm pretty confident gold stays a safe asset. Bitcoin could could keep changing, but for now. Uh, they're inversely correlated, quite inversely correlated. Francisco, you're making such a such a good point, and I want to finish on this. You can have a risk-on asset and a risk-off asset, both in inflationary environments. So you can be risk-on in an inflationary environment, and the likes of Bitcoin does well, and risk-off in an inflationary environment, and the likes of gold should do well. Is that what you're saying, Francisco? Uh, not, not, not quite. I guess not quite what I'm saying. I mean, I'm not sure I'm, I, I see Bitcoin as an inflationary asset. Okay. Um, I think I think Bitcoin. Uh, if you look at the correlations to five-year, five-year forwards, if you look at correlations to ten-year inflation, if you look at correlations to CPI, there is not much there. I think I think what Bitcoin is is good uh, for is that it's creating a new ecosystem of value transfer. 
um, is creating a new um, a new economic organization, new sort of, uh, based on, on on the stakeholder economy as opposed to the shareholder economy that we have today. And again, Bitcoin is the base of that, built on Ethereum, built on the rest of other coins that are coming behind it. That's what I think is ultimately going to shape up. It's it's basically communities of people that transfer value. Uh, using these cryptocurrencies, which is why the IRS is so interested in taxing this, because they realize there is a lot of economic activity, real economic activity, not just not just uh, um, uh, criminal gangs. It's also a lot of people that are actually transferring, whether it's uh, you know music or videos or anything they produce via yeah. the digital asset world. It's a good job or, I got or, you to or, clarify, or isn't it? Francisco, yeah. thank you, sir. It's good to see you, as always. Thank Francisco Blanche, thank, you. thank you, sir, from Bank of America. <laughs> Right now, and this is a joy to bring in Vinkram Chada of Deutsche Bank, their chief global strategist, tons to talk about in a three-hour conversation with Binky Chada. We'll bring in a little tight. And Binky, I want to first shout out the invention of modern Deutsche Bank strategy and economics. You guys are on fire. David Folkert's Landau is looking out three and four years to inflation. Your colleague, George Saravellis, is near term, maybe going the other way. Are you caught in the middle between DFL and Saravellis? No, I think uh, I, I wouldn't describe it as being caught in the middle. I mean, I think, uh, you know, if you take an issue like uh, inflation, which we really haven't had for 50 years now, uh, you know, it, 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 it's, it's the most reasonable outcome is that reasonable people will have very different views. And uh, I think that's exactly <clears throat> where right. we are. We've got a baseline view that inflation is a risk and just that, a risk. But I think the risk, you know, the tails are pretty fat, and I think that's the key point here. Binky, we've had Wells Fargo on this morning, Federated on this morning, and when they are confronted the question whether you want to be long banks or big tech, they're going with the banks. Are you? Uh, I'm, I'm long the financials and, 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 and the banks. Uh, I'm also long uh, energy. I think uh, you know one of the dynamics that one needs to keep in mind over the last uh, 18 months or so is that you know, this is not a market that has, you know, except for the very early part, you know, trended very nicely. It's been a series of step functions. And so, you know, when I look at uh, the S&P 500 and I ask myself what's not priced in, and, and, and I would argue, you know, it's, it's oil prices. I would argue there's plenty of upside on, uh, you know, the global recovery continuing, especially if uh, the dollar falls. Keep in mind that, uh, you know, you need 3% down uh, on the trade weighted dollar to get 10% in oil prices. So I think it's uh, very, very reasonable that we will see $80 oil by the end of the year. Uh, and the other thing that's not priced in, and that's completely out of whack, uh, are rates. And, and, and so you want to be long, basically, uh, the financials. Uh, other than that, I would be pretty careful here. And I would say, you know, we continue basically to look for you know, a sizable pullback, not uh, the mini version that we had on uh, Friday. Uh, yeah. And, 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 you know, that's going to hurt both the financials and energy, but we can uh, uh, have independent moves, um, oil prices and rates, uh, simply because of, uh, you know, where we are relative to where we can Well, let's go. build on that, Binky. You went on a tour of the asset classes there. Can that bank's call happen independent of what happens in rates, or is it dependent on what happens in rates? Uh, I, I, I think it is dependent on rates because, uh, I mean, if you just look at the last 18 months, financials have been trading, uh, you know, very, very closely with uh, the U.S. 10-year yield. 
and 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 so the pullback is uh, in in the financials uh, relative to the market is uh, you know very easily explained by simply what's happened to the ten year yield coming off its highs. Binky, at the core here, there is a tension between growth and inflation, two different things that are often conflated. And we're seeing inflation as you see oil prices heading toward $80 a barrel at the end of the year, and we see it in certain commodities, which possibly is what China is responding to uh, with selling from its strategic reserves of copper. But we're wondering how much this is asset price inflation, whether this is inflation of key goods that leads to stagflation, as your colleague George Saravellos uh, seems to suggest. When do we have a sense of that? I I, I would say, uh, you know, stagflation clearly has two parts to it. Uh, So the first being growth. I think uh, the key issue and point here is that, you know, growth generally peaks, uh, you know, about a year into the recovery. That's kind of where we are. If you look at our house economics forecast, if you look at the consensus economics forecast, you know, growth rates are meant to peak in uh, the second quarter. And the stronger the second quarter is, the more likely, uh, you know, the sharper the peak is going to be. Um, And and, and I think that, you know, there are always uh, differences in every cycle. And, and, uh, you know, the market has so far sort of diminished uh, the the peak uh, or, 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 you know, sort of uh, ignored and shrugged off uh, Mm -hmm. basically the peak growth thesis. Uh, And that's because, you know, we we have this big gap between goods and services right now. But I think anybody's investment thesis at this stage, uh, you know, needs to confront a very simple chart. You have a retail sales growing for five years, a 4% trend rate, it's nominal, you know, uh, uh, purchases of goods. And and, and if you ask, you know, where are we today? We are 10 percentage points above the trend line. And that strongly argues for, you know, not only slower, but very likely slow growth on the good side. So the big question is, you know, what's going to happen on the services side? And, 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 and sure, there will be an expansion, but services don't tend to go on the other side of the trend line. Uh, and so that, on the whole, you know, basically argues right. for a, 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 a slow growth. On the inflation side, you know, I would argue, you know, a, 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 a this summer, yes, it is important. But remember that inflation, you know, generally lags. So this problem's not going away. I mean, if you look at historically how inflation's behaved relative to, you right, know, what people talk, unemployment, the output gap, it's next year that's going to be the problem. The great missed call of the decade or two decades has been the certitude of single-digit equity returns. Mm-hmm. Wrong, wrong, wrong. Wrong. Mm -hmm. SBX, 16% per year for the last 10 years, I think. Are we going back to a single-digit structure? I mean, Uh, everyone's predicted it, and yet you and the other optimists have said, no, you got to play. You got to be in the game. uh, So, so, you know, I would keep in mind that total returns S&P 500 last 100 years, since you did bring it up, is about 11%. It's a very, very clear trend channel. And the gloom crew is saying it's single-digit. Yeah. So I would say, given what's happened last year and this year, you know, I mean, we have brought forward some of that return. So single digits, you know, next few years is not unreasonable. Binky Chandler in the studio from Deutsche Bank, the chief global strategist. Anna Han joins us now, <laughs> Wells Fargo Equity Strategist. How'd they do? Anna puts her pants on one leg at a time. They're oh making it up as they Where go. Is this going? Hey, hey, TK, you want to go there? I don't. Anna, I'm going to keep things down the middle <laughs> with you. Markets. Right? Let's get to that equity market. <laughs> Anna, has anything about your outlook shifted in the last week? 
There has been some shifts, uh, especially in the last week. What you did see is that uh, more people on the Fed are expecting a little bit of a sooner rate hike. But, you know, that move, as much as it was uh, a bit surprising, wasn't all that um, mind blowing. You saw go from 2023 to maybe a hike at 2022. That probability distribution has been pulled forward in the time frame. But that's not the biggest move to us. I think more surprising in the market was hearing taper talks start. But, you know, when is tapering actually going to begin? We don't think that's yeah. going to happen until the end of this year. Anna, your note is brilliant. And the way you dovetail GDP in is great. I've been I've been harping on this for a week and a half. I'm putting my pants on one leg at a time, Anna. I want you to tell me right now what Jerome Powell putting his pants on one leg at a time. What we do with 11.3% nominal GDP, your new statistic up 7.3% plus 4% inflation. I think that math is 11.3%. And that's a boom economy. Stocks go up. Yeah, when you looked historically, you know, equities can go higher even as rates are moving higher. Uh, and that's Thank because you. it's the level at which they're coming off mm. of where we're listing off of. Mind you, look at where the 10-year is. But with these kind of changes to our projection, the big driver there is going to be consumer expenditure. What may be a risk to our outlook, we're keeping a very close eye on, especially with upcoming earnings, is going to be how the supply chain and inventories hold up. Anna, you talked about the surprise of potential tapering, what would the implication be? What's the reaction of equities should the Fed start to taper their bond purchases sooner? Well, you know they're buying $120 billion a day. And I think rather than being a crutch at this point, it's just something like we've gotten so used to it. We've come dependent on it, having that liquidity. As they taper that back, I think that risk appetite will be parred back a bit. And that's natural. When you have accommodation coming off the table, people are going to have to adjust their risk outlook and see what kind of cyclical exposure they want. But that doesn't mean necessarily it's time to head for defensives. In fact, the macro theme play still remains reflation recovery here it's just a bit of a little shift and it's different mentality than we saw from a year ago so if you had to own one sector into year end and would it be the financials or would it be big tech I would go with financials. You know, the millennial in me still believes that tech has more upside to go. But, you know, the outperformer here, especially in the back half of this year, over the next six months, I put my money on banks and financials. John. Anna, how much is this a bet on a steepening yield curve? You know, that steepening yield curve has been, uh, you know, it's been a headwind for banks and financials in the last quarter. You saw what happens when the back came down. You saw what happened last week when that yield curve has been flattening. Uh, and it can be a challenge. But I think that's something that the market is going to get through. I think that's something that's going to see that trend return to a steepening yield curve, um, especially as you see more data come out. But one of the things we got to watch out for as well is, you know, how long is that inflation uh, going to be marred or when can it continue? Can the supply chain really slow it down and keep that suppressed for the next several months? I think that's going to be a part of the market. We look as a signal for that. And always great. Thank you. And a hand there of Wells Fargo. This is the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Thanks for listening. Join us live weekdays from 7 to 10 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio and on Bloomberg Television each day from 6 to 9 a.m. for insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. And subscribe to the Surveillance Podcast on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on The Terminal. I'm Tom Keen, and this 
is Bloomberg.